Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'd like to begin this morning by prayer because I'm going to need grace. You're going to need grace. I am not at 100% this morning, but God is good and He, His power is seen in our weakness. Let's pray. Lord God, let's pray that You would give us strength, eyes to see, ears to hear. We might see what Your Word has for us, how You might have us to think, to live, to act, to pray, to praise differently than we are now in light of Your sovereign love, in light of Your choice of us. Lord God, I pray that You would sustain me, help me to speak clearly as I ought, and help these words to bear much fruit in the lives of Your body. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, this morning brings us to the end of a four-week series on the doctrine of election and predestination. And that's all available on our website and in our um, podcast. And if you've missed any of that, I'd recommend going back and checking that. These four weeks are a series. They, they flow. And in week one, we looked at the absolute sovereignty of God over all things and how God's absolute sovereignty in no way nullifies, mitigates, minimizes human responsibility. That mysteriously, God is sovereign in and through all things, including a number of things we're quite uncomfortable seeing Him as involved in. And humans are really, truly responsible. Then in week two, we looked at the, the radical depravity of man and how when the Scripture speaks of people being unable to come to Christ, it doesn't speak of some invisible glass wall stopping them, but rather, we are so corrupt, we are so sinful that in and of ourselves, no part of us wants anything to do with God. And the judgment is that light has come into the darkness, and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. And everyone who does evil things does not come to the light. And and so unless God does a work in hearts, people will not come to Him. And we saw in light of that, that as much as God's Gospel offers to all, and none will be turned away, that God has, from the foundations of the world, chosen some, and we will save. And then last week, Pastor Daniel dug even deeper into Romans 9, asking the question, if, if God has chosen to save some, uh, does that then also mean He equally chose for His wrath on some? And we saw... Romans 9 by no means demands that election and reprobation are symmetrical. But there's, there is a sense in which God passes over, and so there's this choice there. But the way He works with and through faith in the elect and the way that unbelief is worked in, the, in the, those who do not believe is different. Um, this week, we're trying to draw this to a, to a conclusion by asking, so what? Um, election and predestination are thoroughly biblical terms. We've seen that. And yet these doctrines, these issues have split churches. And so you may be thinking this is a controversial topic. Why bring up such a divisive and schismatic topic? Why study and focus on this? And truly, if, if all of our exercise up to this point has simply been an exercise in understanding truth, simply just to know facts that do not inform our actions, it would be a waste of time. But God's Word is replete on this subject, and the reason why He wants His people to know about this is because He intends for His truth to affect the way we live, to affect the way we, we interact. And so this morning, I just want to look at four practical ramifications, consequences, of the truth of God's election and predestination 
of some of the salvation. Four truths. And in particular, I've tried to highlight truths that I think might be counterintuitive. Oftentimes when we're dealing with truth in Scripture, we need to let the Scripture point us to what conclusions, what inferences need to be made. And you might be surprised at some of the inferences that the Scripture will make. Now, we've opened to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and here's our first point, what election means for us, is this truth of election, we are humbled before God and men. We are humbled before God and men. I know some people who who are not fans of this doctrine, who've accused those who believe it to be arrogant that we would somehow walk around with a you know emboldened E on our shirt, you know, elect. I actually have known one man who actually got tattooed on his arm, elect. I, you might have good reasons for that. It seems kind of in poor taste to me, because it seems kind of the exact opposite of how the New Testament takes this teaching. Rather than making us feel as though we're the cream of the crop, as though we're the somebodies that God shows, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, speaking to the entire church of Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now note here the emphasis on God's choice. God chose. God chose. God chose. What the Apostle Paul says is, if you had to make any observations on the types of people God chose, He chose the low, the weak, the nothing. If anything, being chosen by God is a declaration of your and my weakness. Not something that we can be proud of, rather a declaration of our baseness. Now, he doesn't say there are none, and in church history is littered with some notably exceptions. He doesn't say there are no wise and no powerful and none of noble birth, but I suggest that there is far fewer than you probably think, or I are inclined to think. The blank here is God shows the foolish and the despised things. And so if we're going to let the Bible inform us of what we make of this, understand that God's choice of His people is not a declaration of their greatness. He will make them beautiful. He will make them valuable. He will make them lovely. Make no mistake there. It's a declaration of their weakness, their impotence, their frailty. It's what, it's what Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, when they're contemplating why God chose the nation of Israel. Listen to this. It is not because you are more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all peoples. You are the smallest, Israel. Not because you are great, not because you are numerous. Love this. Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you. Why did God love Israel? Because God loved Israel. And if we're tempted to think that this somehow makes us great, important, smart, wise, it does the exact opposite. In fact, 
I've been having some conversations about this whole um, doctrine of election in the last couple of weeks. One of the reasons the reformers, one of the reasons why guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and Booster and others had this in their sights and were so dogmatic on this topic is precisely because they're pushing back against the work salvation. Precisely because they feared people would have reason to boast in their salvation. As we talked about this before, two men are sitting on the bench, both hear the same gospel proclamation, one turns in faith to Christ, one doesn't, what made the difference? And unless we say ultimately God, God worked in one's heart, not the other, we have to conclude the one who believed was smarter, better, quicker, not as wicked, more willing to turn from his sin. He saw and understood it better. Either way, heaven will quickly become filled with the good, smart people, and hell will become filled with the bad, dumb people. And you have just established works salvation. God shows the foolish and the despised things. But, but this concept of humbling us is supposed to have practical ramifications, because so far it humbles us before God. But, but the Apostle Paul expects that to play out in the way we live. Turn, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is not some esoteric pie-in-the-sky humility. But rather, what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul says, if we've wrapped our heads around this truth, if we grasp what God has done for us, setting His love upon us before the foundation of the world, calling us, choosing us, giving us life, regenerating us, it will have significant implications for how we live. Colossians chapter 3, okay, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Now there's the link to election. I'm saying you've got to understand yourself as God's elect, as God's chosen. In light of that choosing, put on then, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone is any complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what he's saying is, if you will grasp God's choice of you and what that says about you, your utter helplessness, my total helplessness, that there was nothing in me that drew God's love apart, you know, as if there's something more shiny and something more special in me than someone else. No, the exact opposite. God shows the weak things. God shows the things that are not. If I bear that in mind, it's going to affect the way I interact with other people. It's going to affect the way I go through the line for coffee and donuts this afternoon, isn't it? Or do I think I'm somebody? Do I think that I'm important? Do I think that I'm valuable? Do I think that I have rights? No, the doctrine of election hammers into our heads that every good thing we have, we have in Christ. We bring nothing to the table of merit on our own. Nothing of worth on our own. And it gives us a humility with which to act to others. And this, this, should, this, this, this truth, if we grasp this, should affect marriages. It should affect homes. It should affect workplaces. God chose you. He set His love upon you even though you didn't deserve it. Even though you did not draw that out of Him. But rather, it was His overflow of love. And He calls us as His chosen then to act in kindness and humility and meekness towards each other. 
That's the first point. Rather than making us proud, we are humbled before God and men. Therefore, we act in humility and love. We act in humility and love. Second point of application is we are comforted in our salvation. Now turn over to Romans chapter 8. We're comforted in our salvation. And here's the logic. We can take comfort in the fact that our salvation ultimately does not rest in our own hands. Ultimately, you follow the cord back to the wall. There is God's choice of us. And because of that, because before the ages began, God chose to set His love on us, my confidence in my salvation, my comfort in my salvation does not rest in me and what I can do. It rests in Him. We looked at this two weeks ago, but we could look at this a thousand more times and it will not be any less glorious. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Notice, by the way, there's a one-to-one transition. You don't get on or off this train partway through. The same ones that He foreknew are the same ones that He predestined. And that same group He also called. And that same group He justified. And that same group He glorified. Plus or minus nothing. If God has called you, God has justified you, you can take confidence that God will finish the process. Now, continue on. Verse 31. It's one of the most marvelous promises in the Bible. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him freely, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God's chosen. Your conscience bothers you. The devil is throwing accusations at you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Father chose you. The Son died for you and is interceding for you. All the members of the Trinity, if you are in Christ, are for you, actively working on your behalf. Which leads us to these wonderful rhetorical questions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We regard the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, all of that, that wonderful promise, is rooted back to God's choice. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Those whom He foreknew. These are the things He's done. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him who are called. And so, when you're having a rough week and your stomach isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, I'm speaking from experience here, you rest in the fact that God is in control, and even this is working together for my good. 
And I rest in the confidence that my salvation ultimately isn't from me. Ultimately, it will not depend on me, but on, on Him who has called and on Him who will glorify. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Second, John 10.27, a very well-known verse, the good shepherd will lose none of his sheep. And I, it's interesting in America, the, the doctrine of, of God's election is understood and taught in the Scriptures not very popular. But, the doctrine of eternal security, or once saved, always saved, is. Now, historically, I'd mentioned, those didn't go together. Historically, the, the Calvinistic position, the Reformation position, held to election, it held to depravity, it held to the perseverance of the saints. The good shepherd would cause his sheep to persevere. Historically, the Arminian side held to, um, you can lose your salvation, and that, that ultimately everyone has as a choice, and that God, man's choice, not God's, is sovereign. Now the reason for that is ultimately if at the end of the day God is going to respect your choice, He doesn't want to infringe on your choice, He wants to stand back, be a gentleman. I would suggest to you that that same, that same attitude of Him that causes Him to respect that must then respect your later choice if you decide you no longer want Him. And so historically, those have gone together. But because we believe that God has chosen us, Christ can say things like this. John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Christ knows who his sheep are. And he says, I'm not going to lose a single one of them. They're not going to slip through my hands. We sing, he will hold me fast, not I will hold me fast. And so we're very comforted in our salvation because God is the one who initiated this. God is the one who first loved us. And God's grace and His love will bring us home. Now turn to Second Peter. And it's with this confidence, and I believe, it's with this confidence that we do the work of confirming our calling. Yeah, I don't want you to think that just because God has initiated, God has sovereignly declared and ordained all of our salvation, that that means we have to sit back and do nothing. Remember our first message. It's God and us. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it's God who works within you both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. But I think you work and labor and persevere differently when you're confident of God's work, choice, love, and power than if you're not. And so I remember as a new Christian, this passage in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, one of the first places I actually found some comfort and assurance in my salvation. And Peter is going gonna, is gonna to give us the ground, the things God has done, and in light of those things, calling us to respond, calling us to put on seven virtues. And then he's going to make a very, very helpful observation. So let's just read 2 Peter 1, 3-11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desire. So Peter's just said, God has given you everything, everything pertaining to life and godliness. There's not a single thing you or I need relating to life and godliness that we lack through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people, through His power. He's equipped us for everything pertaining to life and godliness. 
so that we can become more and more like Jesus. And then, in light of that, look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort, strive, labor, to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Now, there are the seven qualities we are to add to build upon our faith with. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Look at verse 8. Sometimes we wonder, is there some bar we've got to reach to give ourselves assurance of our salvation? Some level of achievement? Absolutely not. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You understand that the way you confirm your election is not by affirming the doctrine of election. The way you confirm your election and calling is not by quoting you know, church catechism. The way you confirm your calling and election is by adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And the way you confirm your calling and election is not by meeting some measuring stick or bar, but simply increase, grow. Are you, are you more like Jesus this year than you were last year? That's how you confirm those things. And so the Apostle Peter here is calling on his readers to pursue Christ-likeness, to pursue these virtues, but to do it as people confident in God's choice of them. And I think that as we pursue Christ, trusting that God's going to work through us, that God will give us the grace, that God is using these things for us, we pursue Him and obedience a little differently than if we thought it all depended on us. I know I do. Third, we are invigorated in our worship. We are invigorated in our worship. Turn back to Romans chapter 9. Yes, I, I apologize. I know we're jumping all over the Bible. It's the nature of a topical message. Romans chapter 9. Now, one of the most common objections that I hear, and one of the places where I think we can make the wrong inferences when we understand the, the doctrine of election, is a sort of fatalistic approach. Fatalism says whatever will be, will be. And so either people are elect or they're not elect. What's the point in missions? What's the point in prayer? I was just talking to, to a dear soul who is wrestling over this. You know, I think those of us with children know what it's like to agonize, to pray for our kids. Well, what if my kid's not elect? And the implied thought, is there any use? And I think that if you think that way, you're making the exact opposite conclusions that the New Testament makes in light of this. And so I want to give you good news and encourage you. It should invigorate our worship. First, we fervently pray to the Sovereign Lord. We fervently pray to the Sovereign Lord. The Apostle Paul we saw last week in Romans 9 makes some of the strongest statements about God's sovereignty. Pastor Daniel, he hardens whomever he wills. He shows mercy on whomever he wills. There's some hard truths in Romans 9. And I want you to notice how Romans 9 begins. Paul, while teaching, confirming, 
God's sovereign. He raised up Pharaoh for His purposes. He chose Jacob and not Esau. does not end up in some cold, emotionless, logical, Calvinistic place. Rather, his heart is breaking. Romans 9.1 I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Even though Paul is just about in the following verses to bring out and lay out the sovereignty of God, lay out God's sovereignty. He mercies whom He mercies. He hardens whom He hardens. And and the clay doesn't get the answer back. And yet, Paul says this in the context where his heart is breaking and torn for his people. Turn, Turn to chapter 10. Look how he starts chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God. Prayer to God for them, that they may be saved. Please don't think that believing in the sovereignty of God over salvation somehow means we pray less. The Apostle Paul is praying more. Here's my logic. I am praying, when I pray for the salvation of my children, I am praying to a God who can, in fact, save them. I, I don't pray, dear Lord, please bring Abner to a place where he can make an unforced and free decision to do what he wants and respect that choice. Save him, Lord! If you've got to break his heart, save him. If you, whatever you've got to do, get him. Give him life. That's the way I pray for my kids. I don't want God to respect their choices any more than I would respect their choice if they ignored me and kept playing in the street. And I'm praying to a God who can save them. And the Apostle Paul affirms the sovereignty of God and he says, my heart is torn from my people. I keep praying. I keep praying for them. Because remember, God works through means. And part of the means God appoints is the very prayers. If God has so burdened my heart for the salvation of someone, my, my inclination is, might that not be because He intends to save them? And we're taught in Scripture again and to pray, to pray, to pray. Not to sit back fatalistically. We need to take our cues from Scripture. The very chapter that most strongly teaches the sovereignty of God shows an evangelist's heart a compassionate heart for the salvation of His people. Chapter 10 begins, My unceasing prayer for them is that they might be saved. We need to avoid making the wrong conclusions. No, in the context of teaching the sovereignty of God, the Apostle Paul shows us his passion for the salvation of the Jews and His people. We fervently pray to the Sovereign Lord. Point B, we joyfully praise the Sovereign Lord. Now please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, the theme that I most see connected with the doctrines of election, predestination, and Scripture are tied to worship. I believe the Lord desires us to understand all that He has done for us so that we might praise Him for all of that. We've seen that God takes credit for all of our salvation. I believe He desires to be praised for all of our salvation. Again, as you read through Ephesians chapter 1, just one sentence in Greek, the Apostle Paul can write these massive mammoth run-on sentences. Note again all that is done for us, to us. Note all the members of the Trinity at work. Notice what we are to do or what, 
what, why these things are being done for us. I will try to emphasize it in my reading. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself, His sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. He predestined us for adoption. Verse 5. Predestined us for adoption to Himself, His Son, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. God chose you and He chose me here in Christ to praise the glory of His grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have received redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, believed in Him, were sealed the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Three times. The praise of His glory. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to open Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. One of the practical consequences of understanding this truth is that we give God praise and glory for this truth. That's one of the reasons why I encourage you to continue wrestling through this. I, I don't expect that every one of you in four simple weeks is fully wrapped right around this and, and is, is at peace with this truth. But press on through because there is beauty here. There is something God desires to be praised for. Remember looking back in Exodus when the Lord revealed His name to Moses and He said, I'm going to make all my glory pass before you and all my goodness. And what does He say to the Lord? And I'll be merciful to whom I'm merciful. The Lord God finds His freedom, His sovereign grace and salvation to be central to His goodness and His glory. And it should be central to the praise of our lips the joy of our heart overflowing, our words to Him. Election should invigorate our worship. We joyfully praise the Sovereign Lord. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says this, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Why should the Apostle Paul always be giving thanks to Thessalonians? Because He chose you for the first fruits to be saved. So if we see this truth, it should be a cause for giving God praise and glory and honor. Again, there's none reserved for us. We don't get to boast. The flip side of that implication is all the glory goes to Him. And finally, point four. We are emboldened in our evangelism. We are emboldened in our evangelism. 
And again, this may seem counterintuitive. I get that. Why do missions? If God's chosen you to save, why, why do missions? To which I think that reveals something very pernicious and subtle in our hearts. What I think people are saying when they say that, if God has chosen, then why bother? Is something like this. If my health isn't vitally important, I won't take part in it. Unless you can tell me that I am a crucial, necessary piece of God's plan, that it won't work without me, I don't want to do it. I think that's what's behind that objection. My response is, I get to participate in the single greatest rescue plan in all of the universe. And I'm invited to take part in this? Are you kidding me? Well, I do it if, if God's already chosen. I think that comes from the, look, if I'm not important, if I'm, this again gets back to man-centeredness, if I'm not vital, I don't want it. That's not the way the New Testament makes currency with this. It's not the points the New Testament goes, the direction it goes. We're going to listen to Acts 18. Turn to Acts 18. It's not in your notes, but... What I see again and again in the New Testament is precisely the opposite. Because God's people have been chosen, it invigorates his missionaries, it invigorates his evangelists, it invigorates Paul. Point A here. We are taking part in a mission that cannot fail. Cannot fail. Yeah, I'll be happy to give my life to something that cannot fail. You can give your life to plenty of things that can fail. I gave myself for a number of years to try to make success in a rock band. Amazingly, didn't pan out. Here is something. Here is something that you can give yourself to that cannot fail. Remember the gates of hell will not prevail against it? But the reason it cannot fail is because the Lamb will receive the reward for his sufferings. Or as the Lord says to Paul in a vision in Acts 18, look at verse 9-11. through 11. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why? Why should Paul not be afraid? Why should Paul go on speaking? For I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. For I have many people in this city, many in this city who are my people. He stayed there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. The Lord encourages Paul by telling him, Paul, don't be afraid. I got a lot of people here in this city. And Paul is so encouraged, he stays for a year and a half. He doesn't say, oh, well, if they're yours and you've chosen them, I guess I can go home. No, the Lord God uses this truth to encourage Paul to endure in ministry. Because what he's telling Paul is, your work can't fail. You will reap a crop, Paul. It won't be in vain. Go. Go preach the Word. I have many people that I've set my love on who need to hear this message. Go. And the Apostle Paul is so encouraged, he stays for a year and a half. Listen to how Paul describes his own ministry in 2 Timothy 2. Paul says this, Therefore, 2.10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. They also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Rather than seeing election as a means to, to kick back, relax, let go and let God, Paul says, that's the reason I'm willing to endure anything. That's the reason I'm willing to be shipwrecked and I'm willing to be beaten and I'm willing to be flogged. Because I'm on a mission that cannot fail. 
And because God has set His love and I get to participate in this plan that was rooted back in eternity past, oh yeah, I'll pour myself out for that, Paul said. I'll pour myself out for that. Point B here. We serve a God who is able to grant repentance and faith. We serve a God who is able to grant repentance and faith. And here's what I'm thinking. I know that many of us have unbelieving friends, relatives, co-workers who are hardened to the Gospel who maybe we've talked to before and they want nothing to do with Christ. And we can be tempted to think, you know, I've talked to them, and I'm interested, what's the point? When you read the New Testament, what we see is that God has trophies of grace from some of the most unlikely places. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul formerly persecuting the church, now preaching Christ. Who would have predicted that? Or more to the point, in Ephesians chapter 2, you know this passage well, in Ephesians chapter 2, God speaks of how He saved you and me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So get this, you and I were dead. We weren't sick, we weren't dying. You're dead. He made us alive in Christ. You were dead, God made you alive. By grace you have been saved and raised us with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Your faith is God's gift to you. Not a result of works that no one may boast. Now turn, turn finally to Second Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's, here's the encouragement I want to give you is this. Once you grasp the sovereignty of God in salvation, I find a lot of pressure is taken off of me in my evangelism. You see, if I was an Arminian, if I believed that ultimately it was human decision, that ultimately it was decisive, I, I don't know if I'd ever be able to go to sleep at night because I'd be lying there thinking, oh man, if only I'd said this instead of that. Oh, maybe they'd be saved right now. Or, oh man, if only I'd spent five more minutes with him. I mean, I could have been late to work. Five more minutes. Maybe he would have become a Christian. I, I absolutely, I'm not making this up. I'm, I can be one of those self-analyzing. I would be in that place, in that headspace. And, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 makes it very clear what my responsibilities are I'm what God's responsibilities are. Listen to this. I want you to pay attention to what God says I need to look to and what He's going to look to. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting His opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So I've got to not be quarrelsome, not be kind, able to teach, patiently endure evil. I've got to correct others with gentleness. Those are five things God says Jeremy needs to be focused on doing. What don't I have to be worried about? Whether they listen. Who knows? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. You see, I don't get to 
look at a person and, and evaluate from my perspective just how unlikely it is they're going to come to Christ if I talk to them. We saw two weeks ago that apart from God's grace, they won't. Right? The darkness hates the light. They're not going to come. Unless God works a miracle, they're going to tell me to get lost. But God might work a miracle. Who knows whether he will or he won't. And I've had time and time and time get convicted by this because I'll, I don't want to go talk to somebody. I may have to go talk to a brother or sister or the hard word, or maybe it's a neighbor. I, I don't want to talk to them. I'm nervous. I get butterflies in my stomach. And then my own imagination of the Holy Spirit, I don't know which, will bring this to my mind. What if, what if an angel appeared to me and said, Jeremy, just like to Paul, don't, no fear. Go be bold. Go speak boldly. God is going to grant them repentance. They're going to listen to you. They're going to get saved. They're going to, they're going to, Weep tears of joy, and you get to play a role in that. Would I hesitate for a moment? Would you hesitate for a moment? Think of the person most hardened to the gospel that you know. Think of the person most hardened to the gospel. I want you to imagine the angel would appear to you and say, God has promised that if you will go and speak the words of life kindly, not quarrelsomely, patiently, God's going to grant repentance. They're going to listen. They're going to repent. They're going to come to faith. Would you, would you be afraid of going and talking to them? Would you hesitate to go and talk to them? Here's the point. How do you know God won't? When we look at somebody and say, oh, they won't get saved, they won't come to Christ, what we're really doing is saying, I don't think it's very likely that God's going to grant them faith. We don't need to be involved in that business. God tells us what our marching orders are, to be faithful, and he says he'll worry about the response. Which means I can sleep like a Calvinist, pardon the pun, I can sleep. If I've been faithful, that's what God's going to judge me for. And the results are up to Him. He makes the seed grow. He makes hearts change. He opens blind eyes. We serve a God who's able to grant repentance and faith. That should make us incredibly bold. Because who knows, this hardened person might be the next Paul, might be the next Nebuchadnezzar. Right? We don't know. We can just be faithful. Well, there are, I think, many other implications of the doctrine of election. We've just looked at four briefly this morning. We need to now prepare for a time of communion. I'd like to close in a word of prayer. I invite you to stick around to the ABF for discussion. Go back, listen to this series, and continue to wrestle through this. This is heavy, deep, but important stuff. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we want to believe your truth, and we want your truth to bear its fruit in our life. We don't simply want to know things. We want to be controlled by truth. We want your truth to have its way with us that we might be faithful, that we might act in accordance, act as those who are your called children. Put on compassion, humility, kindness, and love towards one another. That we might be humbled before you. That we might cry out our prayers day and night to you. We might take confidence We praise You for the good You have done us. That You might boldly speak Your words to others, knowing that, Lord, You can grant life. You can save. This mission cannot fail. Lord God, now as we turn our attention to Your table, help us become worthy. In Jesus' name, Amen.